Welcome to Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly podcast, coming to you from the mountains of Telluride, where uh, this is Eric Cohn, chief critic and deputy editor, sitting on a bench with Ann Thompson <laughs> as we gasp for air, trying to adjust to altitude. Looking and at the gorgeous mountains. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And also taking in the scenery before we sit in a bunch of dark rooms for four it days. it starts to rain. Yeah, exactly. the forecast is rainy. And I'm not wearing my hat because it may be wet. So I she's harder to spot. <laughs> but yeah, there's a lot that's unpredictable about Telluride, but also a lot of stuff that we know going into it this year in particular because one of the biggest, most anticipated movies we were fortunate enough to see ahead of the festival, Roma, which already screened in Venice. And uh, we agree that it's an it's amazing a movie. Yeah. It's a masterwork. It's beautiful, stunning black and white, and it's not your conventional narrative. It's basically a series of anecdotes, but things do happen, and it's almost an upstairs-downstairs kind of uh, look at a 70s household in Roma, neighborhood of Mexico City, very much uh, detailed and uh, based on the uh, youth of Alfonso Cuaron, the filmmaker who has spared no uh, detail in bringing this incredibly moving, incredibly beautiful kind of um, neorealist work. Well, but what's really cool about it, too, is that even though it's based on his childhood and he, there is a younger child in the film who sort of is, is the basis him. for him. Yeah. Yeah, it really it's is not from, the youngest one, though. It's the 10-year-old. The 10-year-old, second youngest. But they're, they're not the main characters. The main character is this, this housemaid and sort of how she's kind of a silent witness to all this stuff that's happening around her and sort of absorbing all the tensions of this family while dealing with a lot of her own hardship and searching for ways to kind of, you know, verbalize that. I found that to be really striking because the film sort of reorients your perspective. It's not a coming-of-age story about the kids. It's more like this woman having to, to be the supportive kind of force in their world while also trying to keep her life together and the, the way that it kind of gradually uh, explores her experiences in this really interesting moment in Mexican society it, it creeps up on you, it casts a really unique spell, it's an interesting movie to hype because it's not about what happens in the movie so much as what it's like to experience the movie. Well that brings up the issue of this extraordinary 65 millimeter uh, Ari Alexa uh, crisp black and white image and then and, and of course he's taking because for various reasons his cinematographer of choice uh, Chivo Lebeski was not available the one who's won uh, three Oscars in a row and helped Inuritu with his VR and all that so the person who ended up uh, doing the cinematography of course was Quaron. and so you look at this is one of those like Sherlock Jr. credit things where, where you see written by directed right. by produced Although by to his credit, shot he's by kind of, edited he by puts, he puts a lot of <laughs> that stuff in the credits on screen alongside other people's names so it doesn't feel totally <laughs> self-serving. I'm not but making fun of him. It's just that it is what it is. I mean, it's, it's a, a personal, personal yeah, work. He's writing, he's writing his memories with the camera, essentially. So but he's going from gravity, right, to this. And, and by the way, there can't, it can't be ignored that there's the Three Amigos aspect of it where these extraordinary Mexican filmmakers are basically dominating uh, the landscape uh, with Guillermo del Toro winning uh, Best Picture last year with Shape of Water, yeah. with Inuritu having already gone in there with Birdla- Birdman and, and all uh, his and, and Revenant, you know, he's he's in there too with Babel, all his right. films, and now we have uh, this extraordinary movie. But but this is a Spanish language movie. It will be uh, eligible for the uh, foreign language Oscar. 
And which should be a slam dunk in any, in any contest. Case, they've got to submit this. And 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 it has quietly opened in Mexico, so that so it will qualify in that in that sense. But it is an interesting play because when you think about it, so the whole Netflix of it all. Having seen the movie now, one of the things that I thought thought was kind of fascinating about it was that this is a movie that. Uh, could be very rewarding if you've seen it before to come back to to study details and so on and so on. I can't Some, wait to see it again. Well, that's the thing. So, Netflix subscribers, if they see the movie and really love it, will have that opportunity. And I guess the real question is, is that going to work in its favor that this movie is is actually well, very so. available? It'll be a repeat viewing experience, right? But they but it's also a two and a half hour movie that you kind of have to be open to. You kind of have to live with I'm it. Glad so I saw it in a screen. yeah, you I'm should see it in a the theater. Home. You absolutely I don't should. To, I don't think people should be interrupted or or looking at their phones. So or it going is a to real a test. It is a real test of what Netflix can do with a movie like this. Can it actually create this international phenomenon while at the same time giving it a theatrical life letting it be celebrated that way and i feel like maybe this weekend in telluride we'll get a sense of you know how does it, how does play, it play in this context yeah. before it goes on we're, we're the target audience but we're a small audience you know right. how mean, will is, non-movie is it an react? art house it's obviously going to be a huge art house hit but um it, you know how big will it be it could play for spanish language audiences all over the world but still on the art house end of the spectrum i would suggest so the other movie that's here that's coming from venice with some hype around it is the favorite which i actually had the opportunity to see early because i'm moderating QA with director yorgos lanthimos and that one i'm even more curious about to be honest with you because roma i think roma will play well at any festival and they can screen this in a lot of places yeah in addition to you have to assume lots of small regional places and it's gonna it's gonna have that kind of life the favorite is a really cool funky movie in a way i mean it's got bite to it and it's you know shot it with candles it's got a barry linden-esque vibe um i've been thinking more of like marie antoinette in in a certain way because there is a more of an ironic element to the tone of the film but uh but it's it's just a lot of fun. So I think it'll play well. But it's a very nasty film. It's Yorgos Lanthimos. There's 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 bite to it. it. He didn't write it, but I guarantee when you see the film, it's his. You will see scenes that there's more of like there's a physicality to it that's kind of wacky. So I'm really curious about how that plays. I'm here. looking forward, needless to say. And then we have all this stuff that we haven't seen. Old Man and the Gun. Is Robert Redford going to be a slam dunk Best Actor candidate? That kind of stuff. That's so, a question mark. So the three in the next few days, a lot so of stuff can happen. Searchlight has three movies. The other one is uh, Old Man and the Gun, David Lowry. Uh, I hear, by the way, that Stacey Spacek is very good in that. Well, it's been a um, while since we've been so, able to say that. So that's, so. you know, that it may be more her movie in, in a way. It would be great. They're selling Redford right now, but, you know, you never know. It's um, misdirection. <laughs> and then they catch you off guard. And, uh, and then, oh, and by the way, it's a total clusterfuck tonight, uh, Friday. Every movie's playing opposite. You know, you've got the you've got then, first man and front runner back to back yeah. and one theater opposite white boy rick which by the way screened for the volunteers last night and it played well Always so good i'm really to know. looking forward and on the plane were jeff robinoff first time telluride along with very old school uh, telluride attendee john lesher mm-hmm. they're the guys who made white boy rick over over at sony with mm-hmm. Jan demange who did 71 so i'm excited matthew mcconaughey will be here as well and hugh jackman is coming for the first time with the front runner um uh which is a another sony movie with uh, jason reitman who's an old hand 
Yeah, so there's a bunch of stuff like that. But honestly, when people keep asking me what am I excited to see because I've seen some of the higher profile stuff. I want to see the SAS. Yeah, well, that one is certainly one worth talking about. I want to see Destroyer because Karen Kusama, since Girl Fight, has always been an interesting filmmaker, even when she fails. Like Aeon Flux, actually an interesting movie that doesn't quite work. Actually, if you go back, it's an interesting movie that doesn't quite work. But she's in this really... fascinating phase after an invitation where it's like it seems like she's sort of rediscovering her roots and this detective movie with Nicole Kidman I don't know if it's going to be for everyone but it does sound like a it's got a late night screening slot which I remember was what Under the Skin had here and I'm just really excited for something like that that's it's got the Telluride context but it's not quite on people's radar the way some of these bigger films are look I need to be surprised by stuff I'm really curious about Sebastian Silva making his Telluride debut with this film called uh, Fistful of Dirt, which was shot in the aftermath of Hurricane Maria, uh, Maria yeah, in Puerto Rico. So there is stuff kind of lurking in this lineup. And then we both had the chance to see Thank You Netflix again. Um, I had this great day where I was over at Netflix seeing movies back to back and in screening room, you know, moving around the, but they have multiple screening rooms. Living on beanbags. <laughs> <laughs> they have this enormous cafeteria that takes up like a whole floor and it's they've got more snacks. And apparently yeah. the people who work there talk about the Netflix 15. They don't want you, know, you to leave. They came, right? <laughs> yeah. Exactly, exactly. And on my way out at like 9.30 at night, having seen three movies, there was, uh, including Roma, by the way, uh, there was uh, Adam Del Dio, you know, from the documentary side, working, you know, at 9.30 <laughs> at night, coming into the building. Snacking away. <laughs> I can testify to his 24-7. So, so uh, but, but the snacks took you off course because what you were going to say is we saw the other side of the wind. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> Orson Welles' uh, restoration which I think a lot of people were just sort of assuming was going to be this huge mess of a thing it's actually quite fascinating and as a, as a huge diehard Orson Welles fan, don't forget I named my cat after the guy. F for Fake is one of my favorite movies. I found it very satisfying to see that there was enough here to really appreciate some kind of vision that he was trying to pull together. It's not a finished movie per se, but seeing John Huston playing this Wellesian character is it. it's great. And the rapport and that Dan he has Huston with Huston did his voice and very where interesting. it was where it was uh, where there were holes. Yeah, I did not know that, the and way, I never would have guessed. You never would have guessed the way they stitched it together and the chemistry between John Huston and Peter Bogdanovich That's the of the is movie. it's like a buddy movie or something. It's really funny. So I was having a conversation with Morgan Neville who. Uh, directed the documentary that goes with it uh, which I haven't seen but I was asking him because there's black and white and there's color and the uh, if it were me and I were not executing purely Orson Welles's vision I would have made it all black and white not the movie within the movie that's in color that silly movie with his mistress wandering around naked right which is actually called the other side of the wind in the film it's, so it, there's a party where you can spot all these people that I've known for years right. you know I'm wandering around like Henry Jaglum and the great late great Paul Mazursky even Les Moonves was at that party apparently I looked at the credits, at the credits. Yeah. I know Todd McCarthy was at that yeah. party and Jim and, and a key role is played by this uh, critic I've known for years uh, named Joe McBride. <laughs> That's right, Joseph McBride, great great scholar and critic. So it's, it is a really cool kind of um, snapshot of history. But the I black think, and white is better than the color. Yeah, I mean, the way it oscillates between these things, I don't know all the, the technology. technical details. Yeah, why, why that happened. It, We're going to do a story on that. It is very interesting because it it does feel a little bit like 
this was the only way this movie could possibly exist. It's a movie about an unfinished movie, but the uh, but it is really interesting because on some level it feels like this is this movie was designed not to be finished because the plot of the movie is that they couldn't finish the movie, and it's about Wells. Relationship in a way relationship with Peter Bogdanovich and, and being bankrupt who's playing himself and, yeah I mean it's just a, the, it's very sad actually yes. it's very touching yes. and it's also there's some dialogue between the two of them that actually I found moving there's a there's a moment um, where uh, Peter Bogdanovich realizing that his 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 incredible idol this man that he's revered for years who he can't seem to come through for enough um, is is basically killing it, you know, killing their relationship. And he looks at him and said, uh, he quotes. They talk about Shakespeare a lot, and he quotes, "And our 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 revels ended." You know, the Shakespeare, our revels are ended, and it it, it felt really sad. Yeah, no, it is. A sad, and if you see the Morgan Neville documentary, uh, "They'll Love Me When I'm Dead," really helps contextualize a lot of what was going on there because that relationship does fall apart in real life between those guys. But after and, this movie after this movie so, so you are you are watching something real happen in a way um and i also think that the scenes of oya kodar wells's partner in this movie within a movie wandering around basically naked the entire time and very bizarre abstract thing it looks a little bit like zabriskie yes. point or something it's like it's like wells is saying like oh yeah the quote-unquote art films that you you people think are so great it, like i can do one of those in my sleep it looks you know? great <laughs> you know but it's so sexist also yeah it really is although She's the utter object of of sexualization it is, it is worth know? pointing out that there is a critic character in the film who is basically saying that throughout the movie the, the power goes out halfway through and there is a conversation about the sexism in the film. So even there, there is a degree of self-awareness. I guess, again, going back to the Netflix question, it's going to be a real test. Is Netflix a good platform for a film like this? Yes, it will be available all over the world, but will people say, watch the documentary and then get really into watching the movie? Will they want to watch the movie? Will they turn it off after five minutes? It really feels like this platform has been inching towards a moment like this where actually compelling challenging films that wouldn't even be here without somebody like this with the kind of deep pockets to make them happen are, are putting something or the out technology there. Yeah, or the technology that's existing today. So so it really is going to be interesting to see how do they launch here and then how does that launch lead into the lives But we'll never that they really have. know because they're never <laughs> going to tell us. We got to keep pressuring and, them. You know, they're going to keep uh, churning out this stuff um, and and it's a it's a fascinating uh, moment you know we longer conversation but where netflix and amazon which also has a film here peter lou the new mike lee which i'm excited to see which didn't go to can but is here and these netflix movies didn't yeah. go to can but they're here but then you have some we haven't seen at the time of this recording first man which feels like the more traditional kind of oscar movie got Obviously great played, reviews out of venice yeah, yeah. as did roma so i don't mean as did the favorite but the thing is roma to me doesn't feel like a traditional oscar movie i mean it's only it's traditional a foreign language the foreign Oscar language movie. Oscar movie. But they're going to push it. Right. So that versus this, you know, Ryan Gosling, Damien Chazelle, Neil, Neil right, Armstrong right, right, movie. Right. It's going to be really interesting to see, you know, where the chips fall in that respect and the fact that they're all at Telluride. I mean, we should talk about this Also for a the bit. debate about the favorite. Uh, whether, well, I think we should talk about these more after I've seen them. Well, um, I guess in broader context, right? Why does Telluride matter when a lot of these movies, all three of the movies we're talking about already premiered in Venice? Okay. What are they going to so get? So Venice here? I've been to and Venice 
this is a great festival. And obviously, these movies have all debuted there. Um, Roma, First Man, and uh, The Favorite. And there's more to come. But um, they don't have the, the media, the American media, uh, the, the Oscar pundits, the critics, the, the people who create the buzz, and also the buzz that's created at this actual festival. That's right. what's one of the wonderful things about this festival. You wander around from day to day, from theater to theater, standing in line or whatever, and you find out what, how these movies play. Yeah, you wind up trapped in a gondola after dark. <laughs> and it, you can't see the person, but you know it's like non-industry. Like l- yesterday I was checking into my hotel and some total non-industry person from the Pacific Northwest was talking about how he loves Yorgos Lanthimos. He called him a horror Wes Anderson type of filmmaker. And it's like kind of interesting because you, you do kind of get outside of that industry bubble of critics and distributors there and all that. There are art houses all over the country, and there are people who watch Netflix all over the country. That is the reality. Yeah, and it helps, it helps to be in an environment like this where you can kind of see that before diving back into it in Toronto, which is kind of like business as usual, as, as much as I do appreciate that so festival. So the third, the third uh, Fox Searchlight movie is Can You Ever Forgive Me, which is Mariel Heller based on a screenplay by Nicole Hall of Center starring Melissa McCarthy. That's a question mark, you know, how, how that's going to play here. Uh, is that a Melissa McCarthy performance? Um, and then on The Favorite, how does it go? Does it go Olivia Colman supporting with... Emma Stone and Rachel Weiss in the lead. Right. How do they decide? Everybody's that? saying Coleman for for lead. I, Someone Nordine was saying supporting, right? Yeah, Michael Nordine was saying. To me, it's like the problem with that is that Rachel Weiss is the really strong supporting performance in this movie. But who's I, the lead? Is it Emma Stone? It's kind of divided between the three of them, so it is really tricky to, to make that call. I mean, That's why they're waiting for us to tell them. But that is the essence of the movie. You know, it's essentially a love triangle about people competing for attention. So, you know, talk about meta storytelling in that sense. But it'll be really fascinating because by Monday we will have, I think, a much different perspective on how these movies are doing. I mean, remember last year, Downsizing opened Venice and played pretty well, and then it came here and it just tanked. So, you know, the, there really is a difference in these environments that can, can shift the narratives very around true. the movie very quickly. All right, so we should get on the bus because we're going to go travel up the mountain for a little picnic. Get and rained then on. Go see, get, get rained on, gas for, for air a little bit more, and then go see Old Man and the Guns. So let's, uh, let's keep the weekend going. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit amfam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.